We have Mickey B. from Bryan, Texas. I've known Mickey less than 24 hours, but I can promise you I've made a lifelong friend. That's one of the very biggest blessings to this AA program. Good morning, everybody. My name is Mickey Baldwin, and I'm a real alcoholic. And I'm from Bryan, Texas, where the men are men and the sheep run scared. And the women are cunning, baffling, and powerful. My home group is the Hearn Happy Hour Group in Hearn, Texas, and it's the best home group in the world. And I hope you feel that way about your home group. Um, Hearn is about 20 miles uh, north of Bryan, Texas, and Brian's about 100 miles north of Houston, for those of you who are trying to figure out where that all is. And uh, uh, Hearn is a real small town. Some of you have probably never heard of Hearn, Texas. If you have, I'm sorry. <laughs> Not much going on in Hearn, uh, but, uh, but a lot of good AA. And um, I really, really like my home group. Um, I am so thrilled to be here this weekend. Uh, I realized shortly after being here last night that this is exactly where I need to be this weekend. I want to thank Stacy uh, for inviting me to come. I want to thank the committee for your absolute wonderful hospitality. Um, I want to thank Heidi for her, her just absolute um, wonderful mentorship and, and being the best hostess. Johanna picked me up from the airport. Uh, we had a wonderful ride over here. In, became intimately involved on the way over. Had great conversation. Uh, when we got over here, she kept saying, I'm sorry it's taking so long. Well, I had no idea because I don't know where we are. But <laughs> we, uh, it, it was great. We had good conversation. Uh, talked about the program. Talked about... Uh, where we were in our sobriety, and, and it was great. It was exactly what I needed. God always gives me exactly what I need. And then getting to meet Heidi and uh, went out with a bunch of crazy women last night. I uh, had a wonderful meal, and, you know, um, I'm sorry I missed Pearl yesterday. didn't get here in time to listen to Pearl. I heard great things about her lead, and then uh, Irving last night. Was that not a talk? You know... And to think Irving could, someone like Irving could be a trusted servant, you know? I mean, <laughs> it shows you there is a power greater than ourselves, uh, you know? And I've seen him in action, and uh, uh, what a blessing. Irving, you're just great. Uh, I'm just so grateful to see what God has done for you and what the program has done for you. And, and you know, I, I'm thrilled to be a part of this. And uh, our Sunday morning speaker, Bob, I love Bob. He's absolutely phenomenal. He's just going to blow you out of the water. And then uh, my uh, hero tonight, Tom. You know, uh, I, I've known about, I knew about Tom long before I saw him or met him. And uh, it's kind of interesting. I've told this story a couple times this weekend. I'll make it real quick. But when I was about 10 years old, living in Hearn, Texas, my best friend's mother was an alcoholic. And there was this little older woman, Marge W., who used to come to my friend's house and take her mother 
to these meetings called Alcoholics Anonymous. And Marge was always over at my friend's uh, house, and there were always these people coming over there. We called them hobos. But they would sit around, and they would drink coffee, and they would talk and talk and talk and talk. And then on some night of the week, I don't remember what night it was, we would go to the First State Bank, and then they always had a cake, and they would go in the back of the bank, and my friend and I would stay out in the front of the bank and play bank robbers. And, uh, and then it, when the meeting was over, we got to go in the back, and we would eat cake with them, and they called it Alcoholics Anonymous, and we didn't know what was going on. And my friend would, uh, what happened to my friend's mother is she got drunk one night and uh, hit head on with an oak tree. And that oak tree didn't move. Uh, she broke every bone in her body but her left arm. Her back was broken in three places. They didn't think she was going to live, so they didn't even set any of her bones. And she lived for a year. Um, Shortly uh, after, after a year of complete torture and suffering, she went through DTs in this horrible state, um, uh, all of that. After a year of complete and utter suffering, she died. At, I started drinking at the age of 12. After knowing that alcohol had done this to this one, we knew she was drunk. We knew that's how she, why she crashed that car. We knew that's how she died. But still, at the age of 12, I picked up my first drink, and I started out on my career. And 20 years later, when I came into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, Marge W. was still there. And she remembered me, and she picked me up. And Marge W. Uh, immediately got me involved in service work, and I, be I became, became her driver. And Marge was one of the most active women in our part of Texas for carrying the message to men and women in, in penitentiaries. And I drove her every weekend, and we would go to three and four prisons uh, on a Saturday and a couple on a Sunday. And that's how I became involved in service work of carrying the message uh, behind the walls in prison. And uh, I'll be forever grateful. And in, in carrying the message in prisons, I met a counselor there, a guy with a lot of years sobriety named Al Mills. And Al and I became fast friends. And Al was the kind of guy that you just loved to be in his presence. You know, just to be around Al, you just felt good. Um, and and uh, I just loved Al. Um, we became fast friends, and uh, a few years ago, I guess about seven or eight years ago, um, cancer got the best of Al, and, and he passed away. And um, Johanna and I were talking on the way over here. We were talking about a bucket list, you know, and things that we wanted to do before we, you know, but God's got things for us that we cannot even imagine. Uh, I was thinking about this last night because after Al passed away, um, his sponsor, one of his sponsees called me in making the funeral arrangements, and Al had requested that I be a pallbearer at his funeral. I would have never had that on my bucket list, you know? <laughs> but that was one of the greatest honors that I've had in my sobriety. I've never been a pallbearer at a funeral. It's not usually something that a female does. And, uh, but you know what a great honor. Um, well, that was bestowed upon me. But it was through Al that I came to know uh, about Tom and then eventually met Tom. 
And Tom is the kind of guy you just love to be around. You just love to be in his presence. He just, his spirit just uh, uh, in, eludes and engulfs you. And I, I, want, I like to be around those people who you just feel good to be around, who make you feel like uh, part of the power, the power of this fellowship, the power of Alcoholics Anonymous, the power of God. And that's what I needed here this weekend, and that's what I am feeling this weekend. The past few weeks, uh, about the last month, in my area and around, I've seen a lot of people that have been devastated, a lot of families that have been devastated by alcoholism. I've watched people go back to prison. I've watched people's families be disrupted. I've seen a couple of young people uh, take their own lives because of this disease. And I've seen people die because of, of alcoholism. And it's, it's devastating. You watch that and, and, and it's hitting you hard and it's hitting you hard and it's hitting you hard. And this has been a great opportunity for me to come and I realized it again last night, sitting here, and that's why we have conference, to come together to remember this program works. And we have a 100% success rate for when we do these things. It's when we don't do these things that it doesn't work. And the half measures avail us nothing. We don't get 10%. We don't get weak. And there are times when I've been disconnected. Um, and I'm so grateful for you, especially this weekend. I'm so grateful for you. Well, um, as I mentioned, I didn't start drinking until I was 12. <laughs> and that's kind of late nowadays, you know? People are really starting early. And I was living in that small town in Texas, and there was a lot wrong with me before I ever started taking that first drink. Um, I was born restless, irritable, and discontent. Born into a family of alcoholism. My mother has never taken a drink in her life, never smoked a cigarette, rarely cusses unless she's really, really mad. Uh, and is the hardest working woman I have ever known. She's 75 years old. She's retired from the Postal Service and has opened her own business that she's had for the last 20 years and is still working today. I can call her up today and say, what are you doing? I'm working. And she just, that's what she does. The most giving person that I know. My father was a wife-beating, child-beating alcoholic. And he left when I was uh, probably 10 years old. And I did not understand. My mother had finally had enough of his abuse and said, you either quit drinking or leave, and he left. And for years, I didn't understand that. I thought my father left because he didn't love us. I thought my father left because he chose alcohol over his family. And what I understand today by understanding my own alcoholism is that my father left because he did love us. The most kind and loving thing that my father could do was leave because he could not stop drinking, and I didn't understand that. Um, so it wasn't a, you know, I started stealing as soon as I could walk. I started lying as soon as I could talk, and I don't know why. I was just a rebel. I was a rebel with a cause. I was a rebel without a cause. I was a rebel because. I, I just was. <laughs> My sister was the one who was the class favorite. She was the cheerleader and uh, all those good things. And while she was on Friday night 
cheering the football team on. I was in the parking lot stealing hubcaps. I, I don't know why we were like that. We just were. Uh, she was good at getting positive attention, and I was good at getting negative attention. And if you're a kid like me, needing to be the center of attention, negative attention's better than no attention. And uh, so uh, that's just the way we were. And, you know, my mom was working all the time, and I was pretty unsupervised, and, and I was just wild. Um, I made my debut in the 60s. I was a hippie back then. Uh, in the 70s, I lived life in the fast lane that surely made me lose my mind. In the 80s, I rode the highway to hell and uh, finally got sober in 87. Um, and, you know, I, I was just bizarre. I, I, my, when I was 12, my friends and I were walking down the street in this small town. Neighbor had his garage door open. And in his garage were these cases of Long Neck Miller beer. We walked in there. We stole some of that beer and ran down to my friend's house and opened this hot Long Neck Miller beer, started drinking it, reached that feeling of intoxication, instantly followed by nausea and vomiting. <laughs> Made it in the house and woke up the next morning with that green complexion. My friend looked at me and said, my God, I'm never doing that again. And she never did. She saw what the problem was, made the correction, and didn't do it. And I was just as sick as she was, and I said, you're right. I'll never do that again either. And I never did. I never drank hot Miller beer again. <laughs> For a kid like me who's on the wire, living on that razor's edge, having to have something going on all the time, that feeling, that sense of ease and comfort that came at once by drinking a few drinks, that fee brief feeling of intoxication was so elusive that for the next 20 years I would do whatever I could to experience that. And, you know, I'm like Irving last night. I don't know anything about social drinking. I am on. You know, I will drink until I can't drink anymore, until I can't get anymore, until I pass out, until something stops me, uh, will I quit. And I started that immediately. Um, and I started having consequences. First time I went to jail, I was about 14 years old. Of course, it was minor petty stuff. Um, I say minor petty stuff, but it's stuff now that you would go to jail for. Uh, but back then, living in a small town, they, a lot of times they called your parents or slapped you on the wrist, took you in front of a justice of the peace, a lot of times suspended sentence and took you home. And uh, a, a lot of that was handled within the community. Um, today they take you to jail, you go to court, you get on probation, and we didn't have a, a lot of that stuff back then. And there was never a consequence so great that I was willing to look at what was going on. Um, I always blamed uh, somebody else or the police were picking on me or, you know, it's because I'm from a broken family. I always able to make some excuse for my behavior. I started getting reputation early about my drinking. I, I was able to handle more, so it seemed, than, than uh, the, my peer group. Um, there were times I would drink more than the football players and uh, drive them home. And uh, I thought they were the ones with the problem. Uh, I didn't know that I was developing very early this thing called alcoholism. 
I was developing a tolerance to this poison that I was putting in my body. You know, where I should have been vomiting and passing out, which was a normal reaction to alcohol, I was able to still walk and talk and, and act with this. And a lot of times I did bizarre and crazy things, but um, they were having a normal reaction to alcohol. I was having an abnormal reaction, but I, I thought I was in control. I thought it was just cool. And then I started having some other things happen. I started having uh, blackouts where I, I would wake up and not remember how I got to where I was. And uh, a lot of embarrassing things happen with that. A lot of shameful things happen with that. A lot of things that you end up having to drink over, some of the things that you did that caused you that shame and humiliation. And you justify and you rationalize that stuff. You know, I'm so grateful for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous that has gives you, not only teaches us about alcoholism, but also gives you the ability to look back through your life um, and make sense of some of that stuff. At the age of 14, I found better living through chemistry, and uh, I started smoking those funny cigarettes and uh, doing all kind of bizarre other black market pills, uh, taking trips and never leaving the room. <laughs> Painting houses without a ladder, <laughs> laying on the ground listening to the grass grow. <laughs> and it was not uncommon to find me out in a cow pasture after a heavy rain. <laughs> I took a lot of prescription pills. Of course, my name was never on the prescription bottle, but uh, I did a lot of bizarre and crazy things. Uh, you know, and what I understand today about that is when I tell you I'm a real alcoholic, my problem's not really alcohol, or my problem's not really those other things. The big book says alcohol is but a symptom. You know, the problem for me is living life sober. I don't like sober. Sober for me was boring. Sober for me was depressing. I didn't, I was truly fit the bill of being restless, irritable, and discontent. I can get sober. I got sober thousands of times. But I just couldn't stay sober. Sober was not appealing to me. And so I would do something and I would start drinking and then drinking led to doing something else. And then uh, those doors would close, you know, and there were those cell doors that would close behind me. And someone always seemed to be in control of my life. And uh, I didn't understand that. I had a lot of things happen to me uh, early on that caused a lot of significant pain that I had no way to deal with. When I was uh, 16 years of age, I, I look back at my life and, you know, my whole life I wanted to just be loved and to love someone. And I think as human beings we all have that need. But I didn't know how to do that in a healthy way. I didn't know how to love you, and I didn't know how to let you love me. Um, I don't know if that's because I was from an alcoholic family. I don't know if it's because I'm just selfish and self-centered and controlling, dishonest. Uh, I, I don't know what that is. The 12 steps gives me the ability to look back at that and look at my motivation and the things that I did. And what I know is what happened in my life is at the age of 16, uh, I traded wanting to be loved and wanting to love for sex.
and I found myself pregnant and not knowing what to do. In this day and age, if you're 16 and pregnant, it's not a big deal. But in 1972, in small town Texas, it was a big deal. Um, I ended up going to Austin, Texas, where I had an illegitimate child. A family came into my life and said, we will take your child and raise it as our own on the condition you never see this child again. And I made that deal. I made that deal because I knew it was best for that child, and I knew I was in no shape or condition uh, to raise a child at 16 years of age. And I went back to small town Texas with a scarlet letter on my forehead. Everyone in Peyton Place knew what had happened, you know? And I had no skills to deal with that kind of pain. And at 16 years of age, I literally had to depend on alcohol to give me the courage to walk out of my front door to go to school. I literally depended on alcohol or some other chemical to give me the ability to hold my head up and defy society and pretend I didn't care what you thought. But I'm an alcoholic. I have this built-in sixth sense. I know what you're thinking. <laughs> and all I had to do was walk out on that street, and someone just had to look at me, and I knew what they were thinking. And by doing a four-step in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I came to see that no one had to do anything to me or no one had to say anything to me. I shamed myself to the pit of hell for what had happened. I shamed myself to the pit of hell and blamed God and blamed everyone else for what had happened to me. And I had no tools to deal with that pain. I somehow graduated high school. I don't know how, because I'm telling you, I was three sheets to the wind the whole entire time. And uh, I graduated high school and made my first geographical change. I am out of there. I'm out of there because Hearn, Texas was my problem. And if I can just get out of Texas and go somewhere and start over, things will be different for me. I'll go somewhere where no one knows me. No one knows my sordid past and things will be different. I'll start over. And I tried to do those things with the best intentions of, of, of all. I'll find me a good man, I'll get married, I'll join the PTA, you know. <laughs> and I moved to a small town right outside of New Orleans, Louisiana, where they party 24-7. <laughs> Not a good idea. I was there two weeks before I ended up in jail. And I'm thinking, how did this happen, you know? Uh, if it wasn't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. And, you know, that rationalization and justification started. I thought I was being punished by God for what had happened to me. And I thought, I, you know, the old, the old thoughts, the old beliefs would start uh, in my head that I had made my bed and I needed to lie in it. Can, uh, Irvin talked last night about that keen alcoholic thinking. I had a little bit of that, too. Uh, I ended up uh, getting married. I married the guy I got busted with, so he couldn't testify against me, and I couldn't testify against him. <laughs> well, you got to have a good reason to get married, right? So I was really young and really dumb and took in sick, and uh, I got married, and 
in Louisiana and uh, had immediately got pregnant, of course. I was trying to fill the void of that child I had lost. And of course you know that didn't work. But I have two beautiful children. But I still had that void. Still had that awful void. Uh, you cannot replace uh, something with something else. And what I know today is I've always walked around with a God-sized hole. And there's only one thing you can fill a God-sized hole with, and that's God. But my Lord, did I try to fill it up with all kinds of things. Worship of other things, money, property, prestige, uh, even other human beings. And it just didn't work. But I tried everything humanly possible until I found you. I moved back to Texas in 1980, and uh, after I having two children, uh, and I like to say move because it sounds better than unlawful flight to avoid prosecution. <laughs> One of those spiritual moves in the middle of the night where you're throwing everything in the, in the U-Haul. And by the time I came back to Texas, I had made a lot of poor decisions. And one of those was under the, one night under the influence of alcohol, I let a friend put a needle in my arm. And by the time I got back to Texas, I was drinking alcoholically on a daily basis. I was smoking those funny cigarettes, taking those bizarre pills and sticking needles in my arm. And doing what I had to do to support that day. I knew about living one day at a time long before I came to you. I knew about looking for that next poison, whatever it was. Um, and you know, I, I knew what it was to make that bed and lie in it. I accepted where I was. I had thoroughly accepted my plight. I knew what my fate was. And I knew what happened to people like me. People like me ended up shot and killed by other people like me. People like me ended up in dumpsters. People like me ended up killed by police. Or people like me went to prison for a long time. I knew what happened to people like me. And when you're people like me, you don't do anything to change. You live hard, <coughs> die young, and leave a good-looking corpse. You fight as long and as hard as you can until there's no more fight left. And that's what I did. And I'm not proud of the person I became, and I'm not proud of the things that I did. I was a parasite in the community, and I, I, I was just a, an awful, dishonest human being. But I was surviving. I was surviving um, an alcoholic woman. And worse than that, I was an alcoholic mother. I had these two children. Of course, my marriage would dissolve, but I had these two beautiful children. I have a son, Micah, who's 34 now. He's medically retired from the military after serving mine and yours, United States Army, for 10 years. He has 20 months sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. Praise God. And I have a daughter, Monica, who is 30 years old and is absolutely the joy of my life. Thank God I don't get what I deserve. Thank God. Thank God that these children will have anything to do with me today. 
because I certainly don't deserve that. I took these children to the depths of hell because I'm selfish and self-centered. All my life, all I wanted to do was to be a good wife and a good mother, but I'm an alcoholic, and the three don't go together. My marriage would dissolve, of course, and I had these two children that I'm, I'm trying to hold on to. I'm trying to be in control of. And the, I'm the kind of, kind of alcoholic that goes to the store for a loaf of bread and I don't come back for three days. You know, I don't mean to do that. That wasn't my plan. I'm going to the store for a loaf of bread. But yet, I don't understand alcoholism and I don't understand what's going on. And, you know, I come back after about a three-day or three- or four-day run, and I am tore down. I mean, I am sick. And my, I'm in the, laying in the bed, and my children are in there, little, little bitty blonde-haired, gold-eyed children, and they're cleaning their mama up with the washcloth. And they tell me the truth. And you know the truth when you hear it. And they tell me, they say, Mama, if you don't drink anymore, you won't get sick. And I know that's the truth. My soul knows that's the truth. And I made promises hundreds of times to them, to God, to myself. And I said, you know, you're right. That's it. Because I want nothing more than to be with them and to be a good mother. I know they deserve that. I want to stay home with them. And I tell them things like, okay, today we're going to go to the park. Today we're going to go get a video. Today we're going to go play a game. Because my soul is screaming to be a good parent. Because I love my children. From the moment those children were placed in my arms at birth to this day to day. If someone walked through the door and said, your life or your child, I don't think about that twice. Take my life. I don't think about that. Take my life and spare my child. But I could not quit doing what I was doing for my children. Because this thing isn't about love. I don't think there's anything stronger than a mother's love for her child except alcoholism. Because my alcoholism took me from my children on a regular basis. I made those plans to be there for my children and to do something with them, and they buy it. They bought it over and over and over. And they would go off in the room and they'd begin to play, and I'd get up and I'd start walking off that trunk. And I'd walk off and I'd walk off, and then that hand would start to shake. And then that knot would start in my stomach. And after a little while of that tightening up and tightening up, the obsession would hit. The phenomenon of craving. And all it would simply say to me is, you know, Mickey, if you take one drink, it'll quiet that shake, it'll calm that gut, and you can go be a good parent to those kids. And I go and I take that one drink, and i got to go to the store for a loaf of bread. And I left my children with people children don't need to be left with. And my children heard things that no child needs to hear. And they saw things that no children need to see. 
when I was six years sober, my daughter came to me. Because Alcoholics Anonymous had given her a mother at that time. And the reason she had come to me is because she had become a young woman before my eyes. And with the help of the women in Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon, she blossomed into a beautiful young lady. But she came to me and she had become involved in an intimate relationship and she was having problems. And the reason she was having problems, as she expressed to me, is that between the ages of six and eight years old, while I was at the store getting a loaf of bread, my daughter would be repeatedly molested by the neighborhood 15-year-old boys. How do you make amends for that? I'm sorry only describes your character. I thought I'd absolutely die. You know, do it to me. I can take it. But my beautiful, precious children had absolutely nothing to do with my alcoholism other than to be a victim. And it's with my daughter's permission today that I'm able to share her story. Because she told me, she said, Mom, I'm only a victim if I want to be. And today at age 30, she has risen above that. And it was the women in Alcoholics and Al-Anon that, that embraced us. And as a young, young woman, I, she went to therapy and got professional help. The book says we know only a little, and sometimes we do that. And she got professional help, and today she walks a free young woman. And she's absolutely amazing. And she's not one of us. Uh, I don't know how, I absolutely don't know how, but she lives by a set of principles that she's gotten by being around us. I absolutely believe that, firm believer of that. And she is an incredible, amazing young woman. Um, thank God I don't get what I deserve. Thank God. Well, if you're paranoid and you think they're out to get you, they are. <laughs> And in 1986, they came and got me, and I was charged with a first-degree felony, punishable by up to 99 years in the penitentiary. I'm thinking, man, what is going on here? I'm just hanging out with my friends, my buddies, my pals. They call that organized crime. <laughs> and... Uh, I eventually bonded out. I like Johnny Harris uh, from California. He says it doesn't take a genius to get out of jail. It just takes time. And uh, I bonded out of jail. And uh, I'm one of those alcoholics that gets in trouble when you're in trouble. And I went back to jail and I was held at no bond. It was while I was in jail that... Uh, I was reunited with the idea of Alcoholics Anonymous because uh, guys were in there were talking, the gals and guys in there were talking about, you know, when you go to court, it looks good when you go to AA. I'm sure y'all don't have that problem over here in Gulf Shores, but um, 22 years ago in uh, Bryan, Texas, it was a pretty big deal. And uh, a lot of talk about, jailhouse talk about going to AA to look good when you went to court. I went to my plea bargain, they offered me 20 years in the penitentiary, and so I decided to go to a trial by jury. You know, they say it's a jury of your peers. <laughs> but I tell you that, there wasn't nobody there I'd have hung out with. 
while I was waiting on that trial date, I went to Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, uh, I went to my first AA meeting, and I walked in the door, and it was a very conservative part of Texas, and uh, I walked in the door, and it seemed like everybody there was dressed in starched cowboy shirts and starched cowboy jeans with cowboy hats on, and but what they did was they do, did just what you did with me yesterday. You welcomed me when the door opened. And uh, it's what I, we do at our home group. We say welcome and you stick your hand out. And they invited me in. And I walked through the doors, uh, not knowing what to expect. And they said, come on in. You're the most important person here. And I thought, well, I know that, you know. <laughs> Base of 99, come on, you know. They begin to explain a little bit about what it was like and what happened and what it's like today. And a man started talking about how he drank so much that his wife left him. And the pain of that was so great that he put the plug in the jug and he went to AA and his life is wonderful. And I'm thinking to myself, geez. One wife, one time, you know, come on, God. I know some women that'll drink with you. Don't give up yet, you know. But he was talking about honest love, and he was talking about relationships and commitment, and he was talking about things that were so foreign to me I didn't understand. And there was some girl that jumped up in the back and was talking about working a minimum wage part-time job and saved up enough money to get this used vehicle. And I was thinking, girl, I can get you a better deal than that. You know, like, it might not have a title or a, <laughs> you know, a legal title, but I can get you a better deal than that. And, but she was talking about honest day's pay for an honest day's wage. And I was so removed from any of that that I, I didn't hear what she was saying. And, of course, I didn't stay in Alcoholics Anonymous very long and, um, just couldn't relate. I, I didn't hear the music. I, I didn't understand what you people were talking about. And I really thought I was too bad for Alcoholics Anonymous. I thought I had crossed some kind of line that people like me don't change. I had made my bed and I needed to lie in it. It wasn't until I came into Alcoholics Anonymous that someone gave me the idea that, yes, you may have made your bed, but it's time to change the sheets, you know? What a novel idea. But no one had ever told me that before. I, I, no one had ever given me that concept. People say that when you hit bottom, there's only one way but up. Well, I hit bottom and I just went from side to side to side to side, you know? <laughs> I ended up going through that trial and I, I tell you what, they, they had the right person and I was found guilty of this first degree felony and a, a jury came back and decided to give me another opportunity. They gave me this thing called probation. 10 years intense supervision. And I was furious. I was furious. How, how dare they do this to me? Now, I didn't want to go to prison for 20 years, but I didn't want to do this thing called probation. The whole deal was is I was furious because I was afraid. I knew I was never going to stay sober for 10 years. And I knew they had me. Uh, by this time, when I got arrested, I lost everything I had. I lost my children. I lost my home. I was living in an abandoned house with no running water. And I, I was furious that they were going to put me on this probation because they were going to tell me what to do. Like I had so many options going on, you know, I was worried about somebody telling me what to do. I had nothing. 
I had nothing. And they had the right person. 